Well, I've got to get me one of those cool radio echo machines, 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 so that I can sound uh, slightly less, a little bit more godlike and slightly less other side of the pond, vaguely gay. So, hi, everybody. It's Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio, standing in for our good friend Corbett from the Corbett Report. And uh, welcome. We are going to have some interesting conversations tonight. And I would like to chat with you. Call in if you'd like at one eight hundred three one three nine four four three. And uh, we have, if you have questions or comments or issues, uh, I generally do philosophy. I branch out a little bit into economics and some other things as I amateur thrash my way through these various topics. But I would like to hear from you. So I'm going to tell you what I'd like to talk about tonight, and I'm willing to take your lead if there's other things that you want to chat about. But I've been thinking. <laughs> all weekend about ufos and it's not kooky i'm telling you it's really really a useful thing and the question which we're going to ponder tonight the question we're going to roll around like tobacco in the cheek of an 80 year old man in arkansas is what happened what happened to the ufo movement in this examination we can very quickly and i think powerfully find out what happens to a wide variety of movements? Saving the poor, saving the sick, saving finance, stabilizing the economy, all of these things, and global warming, we'll touch on that as well. All of these things are tied into why the UFO movement has collapsed. It's gone. It's, it's vanished. Now, when I was a kid, I was born in 1966. And when I was a kid uh, in the 70s is when I sort of really started to notice something beyond my own diapers. The UFO movement was pretty big. I mean, it was a pretty hippy-dippy time. There were the after effects of the radical mysticism of the 60s still rolling around the empty noise chamber called culture. And we had mood rings and tarot card readings. And there was a lot of freaky guys with long beards at my mom's dinner table. And one of the things that was really going down with UFOs, um, with a little light touch of the Loch Ness Monster from time to time, but frankly, UFOs was a big deal. And abductions and uh, Klaatu calling occupants of interplanetary craft, it really was quite big in the culture. And it still was going on in the 80s, but it really, really began to vanish. And, you know, it just, it just suddenly struck me this weekend that it was gone. And I haven't thought about UFOs in years and years, but it just suddenly struck me that it was gone. Now, why... Has the UFO movement vanished? Well, if you've got aliens in gigantic, well-lit spaceships uh, that often look quite a bit like store-bought frisbees at a medium distance, if you've got those guys floating around the universe, zipping down to to Earth, uh, bungeeing in, yo-yoing in to scare um, Arkansas farmers from time to time, how would you best set up a system to catch them? Well, what would you what you do, of course, is you would give almost every known human being in the planet, a camera and a video recorder that they would have on them at almost all times. We call these cell phones. <laughs> and you could say portable cameras, but just about everyone has a cell phone, and just about every cell phone has video and at least photo recording capacity. And billions of people around the world have cell phones. And with the advent of the cell phone has come the end of UFOology. <laughs> Why? Because you now have people all over the world who are capable of recording and figuring out 
whether these things are actually here or not. If UFOs could be captured fairly regularly on grainy footage by people who accidentally happen to have 8mm cameras running as a night sky for whatever reason, then surely we should be seeing them all over the place if people have these cell phones and can take high-definition video at a moment's notice. This kind of stuff is verification. And as soon as verification begins to hit a mystical discipline, that mystical discipline tends to evaporate. And we're going to talk about a wide variety of mystical disciplines tonight. And I would like to get your feedback at 1-800-313-9443. And we'll talk about how verification blows the ghost of mysticism down through the walls of reason. Talking to you late at night on the Corbett Report. Hello, hello, everybody. It's Devan Molyneux for the Corbett Report, which you can find at Corbett2TsReport.com. So we're talking about how verification blows away mysticism. Now, one of the greatest mystical elements in human society are the statements of governments. The statements of governments are always akin to UFOs exist, are circling us, and have a rabid intergalactic interest in the innards of our bowels, for whatever reason. And a couple of them have been floating around that have had some significant impacts on, on my thinking. I'll share them with you. I, I don't think I'm alone in this. And one of the ones that is beginning to crumble under the weight of evidence is global warming. Now, I have a hate-on for global warming that... <laughs> It probably exceeds my capacity to rationally wrangle, so please be aware that confirmation bias has always is always something I have to fight with global warming. And I actually wasn't that much of a foe of it originally. I thought it was very interesting, and like all people, I'd like to live in a world currently not on fire or encased in four tons of ice uh, per square inch. So I was kind of interested in the global warming. Uh, I'm actually going to be having an expert on I'm doing, doing uh, the Peter Schiff a show tomorrow at uh, 10 o'clock uh, Eastern. He's going to come on around 10.30, a fellow from Australia who's a very interesting uh, thoughts about this. I'm going to read a little bit from his article. But then I remember, and, and you probably remember this as well, that this sort of famous hockey stick graph that first sold global warming turned out to be erroneous. Uh, the, the, the algorithms in the computer code were wrong. And no matter, even if you fed random data in, whatever data you fed in, you got a hockey stick graph. And I remember being floored by that, because so much talk had gone about, about global warming. Uh, this was post-Kyoto. This was uh, the Rio Earth Summit. I mean, it was just, you know, kiss the planet, make it better had been going on for year after year after year. And hundreds of millions of dollars at this point had been spent on global warming research and all of this sort of stuff. And then to find out that the hockey stick graph, which had sold it originally, was completely false. In any rational universe, in other words, in a non-statist universe, this would have taken everything to a grinding, screeching, sparky stop. And everyone would have said, whoa, what have we done? What ah, so, no, have, no idea what happened. We'll just, uh, we'll just continue. Thanks. Little Skype thing. So we're just talking about global warming and how this hockey stick graph turned out to be completely false, and nothing came to a screeching halt. It just was swept under the carpet, it went into the memory hole, and everything vanished. And everything just kept marching on the way it had always been. And that, I remember, 
chilled me. This is over a decade ago now. That chilled me to the bone. And that's when I really, really began to think, my goodness, what is, what is going on here? Now, there were a number of things that seemed to make global warming make sense at the time. So originally, you know, carbon dioxide, yes, it's a greenhouse gas. Uh, it traps heat and all that. That's been proved in the laboratory over a century ago. I'm down with that. I'm A-OK with that science. Uh, number two, uh, this is sort of in the 80s. Global warming had been occurring for a century, and concentrations of atmospheric carbon had also been rising for a century. And, of course, this is particularly in the post-war period, heavy industrialization. Now, of course, as we all know, correlation is not causation, but it kind of looks like it kind of looked like it fit. And then people drilled down deep into the bowels of the glaciers and pulled out lots of ice core data, and they could measure temperature and uh, atmospheric carbon going back hundreds of thousands of years through periods of global warming and, and global cooling and so on. And to the data points that could then be delineated in this ice cores, it kind of looked like atmospheric carbon and temperature moved together. So when you got more uh, carbon in the atmosphere, the temperature rose. And then when you lessened on, ah, smoking gun, that's it. And, and, and nobody else could explain why global warming might be occurring. So all of this stuff, it seemed to kind of make sense. Ah, this is the period of the UFO theory. <laughs> But what happened, of course, is that the data got better and the data got to accumulate. And most importantly, the models put forward by the climate scientists began to be measured against the actual data. Because remember, all of this climate stuff is modeled. Uh, in other words, there are assumptions that are fed into a computer. No matter how complex the program, it's still garbage in, garbage out. And it's all dependent upon the algorithms. And the algorithms make predictions. And then you can see now that we've had 30 or 40 years of global warming going on or not going on or climate change, which to me is just a synonym. Climate, by definition, is change. So calling something climate change is calling something black, no black, no really black, kind of black, 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 the opposite of white. It's all the same thing. And what happened was that um, from 1940 to 1975, the Earth cooled while the atmospheric carbon increased. Oops! <laughs> that is not, of course, the way that it is, um, is supposed to go. And also, they, they got better and better at figuring out how to read the ice core data. And by 2004, again, this is eight years ago, scientists found out that in the past warming events, the temperature increases generally started about 800 years before the rises in atmospheric carbon. Not so much of a smoking gun. Or if it is a smoking gun, it is a smoking gun that has been dropped from the head of the suicided global warming theory. And that doesn't work, right? You have to have, you have to have the carbon first and then the temperature rising. If the carbon emissions are causing the temperature rising, then you have to have it first. If the temperature increases generally start about 800 years before the rise in atmospheric carbon history, then what's happening is the temperature is increasing and generally the carbon is being released from the oceans into the air. So that, that didn't work as well. And now, of course, there is not a proven but a credible alternative to um, an, an, an alternative suspect to global warming. And so in October 2006, Henrik Svesmark showed experimentally that cosmic rays cause cloud formation. Fascinating. I love the world of science. I really do. I think it's just amazing. So clouds, of course, have a net cooling effect. 
But for the last three decades, there have been fewer clouds than normal because the sun's magnetic field, which shields us from cosmic rays, has been stronger than usual. So the Earth has heated up. Now, nobody knows for sure. It's still too early to tell, but it's a good theory. Nobody knows for sure what fraction of global warming is being caused by cosmic rays. So as of now, well, shouldn't say this is an article I'm sort of gleaning from February, so two months ago, three months ago. Uh, as of now, there is no observational evidence that global warming is caused by carbon emissions. I'll repeat that. There is now no observable evidence that global warming is caused by carbon emissions. 20 years of intense investigation, literally billions of dollars spent on this stuff. They would have found something. 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 And there is a lot of evidence that goes counter to the predictions. And one of the things that's really important to remember is that there's these multipliers. They're called feedbacks, but there are multipliers in global warming uh, calculations. So about a third of the increase in temperature is considered to be global warming, but then there's supposed to be all these feedback loops, right? So um, because the, the, the carbon dioxide is going into the atmosphere, there's some more heat, a little bit more heat. And then that causes, you know, clouds to, sorry, causes water to, uh, evaporate uh, into the sky, which which causes more heating because uh, water is one of the greatest global warming agents. It's a, a heat trapper. And so uh, two to three times of the effect is from these multipliers, and none of these multipliers have panned out at all. And so it really is a very, very dubious at the moment. Uh, I had uh, Bjorn Lomborg on my show, Freedom Main Radio, a while back, and, I mean, he's down with the fact that global warming is going up and uh, sorry the, the global temperatures are increasing uh, he's very much for let's spend money on other things because it is very important to remember that uh, even if kyoto was full fulfilled to the letter and of course it's not global warming is way sorry the, the carbon dioxide levels that are being released by industrialization is way higher than anyone expected because nobody really expected at least in 1980 that india and china were going to have these massive growths in their economic activity and all this amazing, you know, horrifying coal productions and so on, coal plants and so on. I think, was it in dozens of coal plants opening uh, every month or two in, in China? I mean, it's nuts. So if Kyoto had been fulfilled to the letter, which it hasn't even come close to, it's quite the opposite, then the amount of future global warming that would have been saved would amount to about 0.07 degrees Celsius by the year 2050 and 0.15 degrees Celsius by 2100. I mean, that's really quite astounding. The amount of warming delayed for just a few years at such an incredibly high cost. It, 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 this is actually too small a variation for scientists to distinguish from the noise of just variable temperatures that go on every year. So I think that's really, really important to understand. You hear all the time, of course, that global warming is a consensus, that if you are uh, skeptical of global warming or climate change, then you are a denier, you are a medievalist, you are a flat earther, you believe that the moon is made of um, space cheese. And this is actually not particularly true. This is, you know, we, we live in this mob-like world of words, not actual <laughs> facts or, or, or truths. So we'll come right back as to where the consensus breakdown breaks down right after the break thank you for your patience we will talk to you in a moment my sweetest friend 
Stefan Molyneux for the Corbett Report. We are talking about global warming. I'm just, I, I'm going to wrap this up and we're going to talk to a caller in just a sec, but I really want to sort of pull together this theme we're talking about that these wild claims are made. UFOs are exist circling through the skies, eclipsing the sun, the moon, and the stars, and yet when the verification begins to set in, when everybody's got a cell phone and we should be getting thousands of pictures a day of these flying craft, the whole movement just vanishes. And the same thing, I think, is going to happen with global warming, and nothing is going to be learned. Uh, nothing is going to be learned. Run off to the next panic. The next, remember, there was going to be ozone holes, there was acid rain, there was um, uh, razor blades and candy bars. All, all of this nonsense that's never actually happened, designed to just scare us, to keep us uneasy, and to keep us leaning upon the great ghastly pillar of the state. And uh, we have a caller who wants to come in and talk about media lies, which, again, to me, is like saying climate change or black is black. <laughs> it media lies is just a synonym, except for this media, of course. Um, Mike, you want to throw him on the waves? Hello? Hello. How you doing, my friend? Good, Steph. Good to talk to you. Um, I, I just have a question. I'm wondering about your thoughts on these things, because... As you're mentioning, you know, technology is sort of making these things like UFOs kind of go away. But um, at the same time, I, I notice all these other things come up. You know, there's still lots of proof proving global warming isn't as, as big as a threat and, and things like UFOs aren't as real and ghosts aren't real. So why do people still cling to these beliefs when faced with almost overwhelming evidence that they don't exist? You know, there's all these UFO and ghost shows on TV and they never catch anything. With all their high-tech equipment, they never catch anything, and people still believe that this stuff exists. Right. Do you have any thoughts? Well, on they catch viewers, and I think that's you know, I think that's yeah. the high-tech equipment is the camera and the commercials and so on. They do catch viewers, and and I think you've got a fantastic question, which is why do people continue to believe lots of irrational things? And um, uh, did you want to add more? Do you want me to take a swing at that? That, uh, yeah, there's one other thing that uh, I don't know if you've noticed this on Facebook, but um, I always see people run into these things, these urban legends that get propagated. Like um, recently it was something like uh, people are poisoning dogs in dog parks all over the world. And it's, it was a complete, obviously, you know, it just looks like a fake story. And when you do a quick Google search, you find that it's a hoax. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts on, on those kind of irrational things and, and uh, urban legends, stuff like that. Why do people still believe in them? Right, right. Well, uh, you know, there's there's uh, there's a lot to to talk about with that. So <laughs> I'm trying to uh, for once in my life I'm trying to organize my organize my. Why not take a real left turn in my minor media career and try and organize my thoughts uh, for for just a moment? I, I, it's a great question, and uh, you know we could spend the rest of the show on that, which might actually be a really really good idea. So, um, uh, as far as global warming goes. Um, there is something about it that, you know, there's something that Lloyd DeMoss talks about. Uh, he's a psychohistorian. He talks about growth anxiety. In, in other words, when society begins to do really well, there is a, an unconscious fear that the gods will punish us, uh, that, that, that there must be some sort of evenness in life. And anybody, you know, pride cometh before a fall. And anybody who is, is, is too proud is going to get crushed 
by the gods. I think of the myth of Icarus flying up too close to the sun. He wants to fly like the gods uh, and, and crashes down because the heat of the sun melts the wax on his wings, his artificial wings. Uh, the, the, the Tower of Babel, they're going to they're gonna grow, uh, uh, build a building up to, to see God. And then uh, God gets upset and thunders it down and splits everyone into warring languages and so on. And so we have historically this belief that if we do too well, if we get too wealthy, if we get too strong, if we get too healthy, that something bad is going to happen. Now, I there's no way to prove this, and but but my general suspicion is that this is something. Uh, this is a myth that is propagated by warlords and priests throughout history to keep people small, to keep people small. Uh, and so you have all of these myths about a man who, who thinks that he can, the man who thinks he can do without God, the man who's doing really well, like Job. He's wealthy, he's got lots of children, he's got a beautiful wife, he's, he's healthy, he's happy. And of course Satan comes along and says to God, you know, he only loves you because he's wealthy and happy. And then God, like any jealous, crazy lover, says, okay, I'm gonna smack him full of boils, I'm gonna blow up his sheep, I'm gonna make his wife fall down dead, I'm gonna kill his children, I'm gonna, you know, make him his, festering skin bubble all over and then uh this is uh, the idea that if we are doing too well we're going to get struck down at, at a very unconscious level i think this is partly to do with uh, what happens don't we always hear that whatever is going well in society is about to kill us right so we have this incredible food production that goes on but now the food is going to kill us people say um, we, we live a long time, which is why people have higher incidences of cancer, uh, and so now we feel that somehow everything is going to give us cancer. And, you know, one of the things that uh, was uh, was coming out of the post-war period was this incredible boom. And with this incredible boom, uh, economic boom in the post-war period in, in the West in particular, in the West almost exclusively, what came with it was a sudden fear of, environmental retribution like we're doing really well uh we're solving the problem of poverty um we're solving the problem of of miseducation or lack of education we solve some of the problems of racism and so on we we're doing really well in the 60s you could see this statistically poverty the rates of poverty dropping by one percent every single year not every decade not every century but every single year and no I mean, so there was the fear of, of nuclear war, and then there was the fear of environmental collapse. And we'll come back after the break and talk about it a little bit more. But I think we're always waiting for that bent branch to whip us back in the face. Every progress is a catastrophe. We'll be right back. You're listening to the Republic Broadcasting Network. Because you can handle the truth. No matter how hard you try, you can't stop us now. Hello, 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 everybody. It's Stefan Molyneux for the Corbett Report. My regular home is Free Domain Radio, freedomainradio.com. You can check me out if you like. We're chatting with Mike. About why do people believe crazy things? Well, uh, and I'll get back to you in a second. Let me just sort of finish up one uh, one little thought. Uh, it's a great, great question. Well, you know, we are we have to fit in this hierarchy. I mean, we don't have to, but that's the way the world is. We have to we we fit into this hierarchy where there are these rulers at the top, and and sometimes they're priests, and sometimes they're kings, or some sort of horrific mixture of the both, and sometimes they're demagogues who claim to represent the will of the majority, but in fact usually represent only the special interests of money power 
uh, or or other times it's just a straight on fascistic dictatorship. So sometimes it's bullying teachers or or bad parents or priests or whatever. But you know, when we grow up and as adults, we have to uh, fit into this hierarchy, and it's really tragic. It, it, it crushes and destroys a, 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 an infinite amount of human potential and human genius, which I think everybody has and everybody can express if they break out of this hierarchy. But we always have to believe that there's something bigger than we are, whether that's God or, or the, the collective or the class or the state or the nation or there's some, something bigger that we have to look at in awe. And the, the UFOs are part of that as well. And, and recently, uh, it's been nature. Uh, nature is is gonna is big is is, is gonna backlash at us if if we do things like are successful as a species. You know, nature is a total witch with a capital B. Uh, you know, I'm I'm all for environmentalism, but nature is itchy, nature is dirty, and nature really really is good at killing human beings who don't have technology and who don't have medicine. I mean, if you look at the history of the human race, it's a staggering wasteland of of famine and uh, disease, uh, basically famine and disease, death by childbirth, uh, premature death uh, through every conceivable disaster that can happen. Uh, infant mortality is incredibly high. Uh, very, very few people made it to any kind of advanced years. The, I think the average life expectancy in the Roman Empire was about 20 or 21 years old. I mean, it's just brutal. So I'm a big fan of, of the outdoors. I love to hike. I'd love to have a, a nice, clean planet to live on. But there's no way that I'm letting that Mother Nature witch stand over me because she slaps a humanity silly with the diseased dead fish of uh, bad harvests and bad germs and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and and so uh, to the point where uh, unpopularity has survived, like people with bad social skills have survived to reproduce because the more popular people tend to get decimated by disease all the time. So we've got this idea that the, everything has to be bigger than us and that limits our human potential. We fits us into a hierarchy. And so I think people are always seeking to replace that. So when the growing skepticism around religion began to really rise up in the 19th century, which came really out of the Enlightenment of the 18th century, there's growing skepticism towards the inherited, organized Judeo-Christian religions of the West. When that began to diminish, what happened? Well, you got the rise of socialism, right? So you got started to shift God out of squatting over humanity, and you had to replace it then with the state. And you will see that, that people who are on the Republican side, who are more rep uh, religious, uh, have the, the, the God to stand over them, and so they can handle a smaller state, because they have a bigger God. On the Democrat side, where they're more skeptical and more secular, they have a smaller God, and so they need a bigger state. And so uh, where we feel that there's just something that has to be over us and that the disasters are going to occur if we get too big and successful. And that's simply the ruling class implanting those ideas in us so we don't actually compete with them and outgrow them. Uh, anyway, those are my off-the-cuff thoughts. Uh, Mike, uh, tell, me, tell me what you think. Does it make any sense? Did I even uh, put a syllable or two together that was useful? <laughs> yes, uh, it was definitely useful. I agreed with you on that. But I, I see something else which I think might be a part of this is um, also that I think the ruling class needs to, to get everybody to believe that be suspicious of the other slaves and, and essentially be um, scared that every, every one of us is evil and that we're poisoning the planet. Um, and it, by doing that, they're sort of causing this fear of the, of the other person. So instead of cooperating and, and reaching out a hand to be uh, voluntarily involved with other people, we kind of look at each other suspiciously and and almost angrily, uh, it, it's kind of pushing us right into the cage of our own enslavement. 
So do you mean, uh, tell me how that sort of fits in, so the way that we'll sort of uh, snarl at each other for not recycling properly or that kind of stuff? Yeah, or even just the the sort of making it popular to believe in in global warming. So you can look down at somebody who doesn't believe in it or who is is skeptical of it and say, well, you just just want to poison all the the waterways and, you know, whatever scare tactics that they want to use so they can just sort of fear, you know, get that fear to control everybody and keep everybody in line. Does that make any sense? Yeah, no, I, I, th- I think that's right. I mean, rulers are very big on collective punishments because collective punishments um, turn the slaves against each other, right? So, I mean, I remember when I was a kid, I don't know if they still do this anymore, but when I was a kid, if some kid did something wrong, like something was broken in the classroom, we all had to sit there until somebody confessed. And so yeah. we'd all turn on each other over time. And the so so the collective punishments are, you know, if you can't find the slave who stole the water jug, then they all get beaten. And, and that way, the slaves will give you the one who stole it, and they'll turn on each other and creates divisions. It's, you know, horrible and, and brutal, but that's the way uh, it works. And it really is, uh, to me, astonishingly horrifying how much human suffering, of course, is caused by all of this uh, environmental controls and, and so on. It's and the idea that we turn to the state to save us from environmental degradation is just astounding. I mean, the state runs the military, and the military is one of the biggest polluters on the planet. If you count, even if you don't count bombs and shrapnel and bullets as pollutants, which I certainly would, uh, but the government is one is the largest polluter uh, uh, by far uh, of um, uh, in the world. And so, running to the government for this kind of solution is like saying, "Well, I'm not going to call the airline to book a flight to St. Petersburg. I'm just going to wait for my friendly UFO to come by and pick me up." And so. Yeah, I think there is a lot of uh, aggression that goes horizontally uh, in the world that, that turns us against each other. And environmentalism is just another one of these collective punishments. If you don't do the right thing, if you drive too much in your car, uh, then uh, or if you don't recycle properly, then the world as a whole is going to get back at us, and I'm going to have to live in the filth that you generate and so on. So it gets us to all sort of police each other. Of course, the ruling classes, they don't have to do any of this stuff, right? I mean... Al Gore takes a private jet everywhere. He has a, a bill in the thousands of dollars per month just for his electricity. He has homes all over the world. This man who believes that the sea level is going to rise 9,000 feet just recently bought a house right on the seafront. I mean, even, even he doesn't believe this nonsense. And so the rules are just for us, the plebes, right? We're the ones who have to use single-ply toilet paper. Uh, the ruling classes, uh, they can, all the environmental activists who are rich, uh, well, they can squander all the resources that they want. Uh, Sting will march through a rainforest and then come back to his 9 million square foot house and, and jet all over the world to, to do his concerts. And I have no problem with people jetting all over the world to do concerts. I've seen Sting perform I don't know how many times, and he's fantastic. But the idea that they're, they're going to finger-wag at us uh, to, to not waste resources... Um, you know, you always expect the rulers to, to lead by example, and they never do, which I think tells you something important about the nature of the rulers. But uh, does that make any sense? Yeah, definitely. Definitely. It's, it's definitely meant for us and not for them. Right. All right, so I'm going to keep going on with the debt crisis, so um, uh, hang around if you like or call back if you have more. If anybody else wants to call in, it's 1-800-313-9443. So just for funsies much. before the show, and this is uh, a definition of funsies that really only applies to me. Uh, maybe to you. Let's find out. I went back. So everybody knows, right, this European debt crisis. It's kind of hard to call it a crisis. It's really hard to call it a crisis. So if a guy falls out of the plane and he's plummeting for a couple of minutes, uh, he doesn't have a splat crisis at the end. It really is a splat inevitability at the end. 
you know, those little wily coyote cartoons, the Roadrunner cartoons, you see him falling, you know, down those canyons of desertified <laughs> cartoony goodness, and there's a little puff, a little puff of smoke at the bottom when he hits the ground. That's not a crisis. I mean, once you've fallen out of the plane, it's kind of an inevitability. So I went back and I looked at one of the uh, goals. The European Union was like a a slow cancerous overgrowth that overtook these uh, member countries. I think there's 27 uh, at the moment. Maybe 26 in a little while if Greece uh, hits the Star Wars eject button. But I went back and looked at one of the big ones, Maastricht, 1993. The Union, I read, shall set itself the following objectives. To promote economic and social progress, which is balanced and sustainable, in particular through the creation of an area with internal, without internal frontiers, through the strengthening of economic and social cohesion, and through the establishment of economic and monetary union, ultimately including a single currency in accordance with the provisions of this treaty. Sustainable economic Progress, balanced and sustainable economic progress. See, that's the goal. That is the UFO. <laughs> and as time goes along, just like global warming, the infinite cell phone cameras of reality checking come in, and we see what the results of this has been. Um, Greece lied and cheated its way in, uh, spent itself madly while relying on the credit of more responsible and um, less restrictive uh, nations, and now is facing frankly, kind of fiscal collapse. Uh, Greek bond interest rates running about a 1,000% recently. I mean, it's just crazy. And they've already extracted hundreds of billions of dollars, really at gunpoint, <laughs> with the threat of uh, uh, drilling a hole just in their section of the raft uh, and taking everyone down with them. And what this, of course, is producing is a massive amount of conflict, just as um, uh, the, the democratic, late, fascistic, income redistribution that's going on between public and private sector workers and so on is causing a massive amount of conflict in uh, in America and other countries. Uh, the conflict is now between those who feel that Social Security is somehow deserved, the, despite the fact that there's nothing there, and the young who have no job opportunities. You've got unemployment and youth in certain sectors running at 50%, 50% unemployment. That is a recipe for Revolution. The unemployed youth uh, is a. You can drag them for a while with uh, free, uh, with incredibly subsidized and borrowed handouts, but that is a game that won't end well. And Obama was recently over, and he was talking about uh, what is the magic solution? See, you don't need to cut your spending, and you don't need to default, and you don't need to exit the European Union. You just gotta wave your magic status wand and produce enough economic growth that you can grow your way out of the problem. You can increase your tax receipts by just having more economic activity. And this really is quite an astounding claim. <laughs> it's one of these astounding claims that you can only listen to with a straight face if you are in a truly post-Orwellian state of living in the terrifying Buddhistic post-statist now, 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 where there is no history and no past. No history and no past. So Obama, who's never had a real job as far as I know, and who's never, st certainly never created any wealth and started and created jobs for other people, never run a company or never been an entrepreneur. He's saying, you see, we just have to push this button called create economic growth, you see. And this button's always been available to us. Uh, the fact that 
workers' wages have stagnated and declined for over 30 years in America is just because, you see, the governments didn't push the growth button. Push the growth button and everything will be fine. So what he's saying is if, if we can just grow our way out of this crisis, that governments can create economic growth, but they've just kind of decided not to do that for the past 30-odd years or 40-odd years. Why? Why wouldn't they do that? If the governments have a big growth button that they can push, why do you have a welfare state? Because you can just grow the economy and then nobody will be poor. So there's this fantasy that there is not going to be need to be any cut in spending and there's not going to need to be any defaults and nothing. So the bankers aren't going to get hurt and the citizens aren't going to get too angry. You're just going to push this magic button. You're going to steroid up the entrepreneurs and you're going to have them out there with their <laughs> uh, legs pumping and fist pumping and, and they're going to do all of this wonderful stuff and create all these jobs. Of course, as is usually the case with a politician, he neglects to point out exactly how this growth is supposed to occur. I mean, is it through free trade? No, Europe already has free trade. That's the whole point. It's supposed to have the free movement of goods and, and uh, people. And so how, how are they going to do that? Uh, oh, I know. I bet they're going to invest in some R&D. <laughs> because R&D is another magic word. We're going to invest in science and research and technology. And that's going to create economic growth. Of course, that's all nonsense because every dollar they take is taken away from someone else, either now or in the future. And how on earth is the government going to know which businesses are going to satisfy customer demand the most? And how is the government going to know that a whole lot better than investors who actually have their own money on the line? Right? It's got to take all the money from investors and from other people, and then the government's going to invest it. Because, you know, you're really going to quit smoking if some alien's lung is going to get diseased maybe on some other planet rather than your own. And you're really going to make really great intelligent decisions about what to invest if it's never your own money and you suffer no economic consequences from making those promises. And when you invest money as the government, you actually get a lot of votes because you can sell those investments under the table as ways of getting, getting votes and, supports and support. So the idea that the government's going to push some magic R&D button, which then pushes the magic growth button, is ridiculous. Now, America could loosen some of the restrictions for sure but if you loosen some of the restrictions then you really uh, you get a lot of negative feedback from all the people who are currently benefiting from those restrictions all the companies that are benefiting from the restrictions that are in place whether it's just restrictions on capital or anything like that so that's all nonsense it's all ridiculous and it's just words another one let's look at the great society Johnson, good old LBJ, launched an unconditional war on poverty with the goal of eliminating hunger and deprivation from American life. Eliminating hunger and deprivation from American life. What a wonderful goal. What an amazing UFO that we hear. What an amazing Loch Ness Monster that we hear and have grainy footages uh, that seem to be floating in the sky or in the sea. How much of that actually came true? I think we can see that all around us. Poverty is still very high in the United States. Uh, it is uh, it is increasing in many ways, in many measures, and that's if we don't count the debt. Spent over $15 trillion trying to fight poverty in the United States. Oh, look at that. The debt is about $15 trillion. Has poverty gone away? Hells no. 
In many ways, kids are worse off than they were before. Rise of single-parent households and all of the attendant problems that go with that in the short and long run. Wretched. Just wretched. So these are all of the UFOs that are currently floating around the sky and darting away and vanishing like tadpoles before the feet of an elephant when the cell phones of empirical reality come out and start actually taking pictures. It is just brutal. Here's another one that is going away. We'll talk about this just very briefly after the break as well. Here's another one that's going away. Remember that? Love it or leave it argument that's post-Socrates and onwards. You live in a country, you accept the laws, and if you don't like those laws, you can leave. Well, some guy, I can't remember his name, I'll check it on the brag. He decided to go to Singapore to avoid hundreds of millions of dollars of taxes on his Facebook profits from going from the stock going public. Sorry for it. Yeah, and, and, and what happens? Well, we'll talk about that when we get back. The lie of the social contract. You just do as you're told. Hello, hello, everybody. It's Stephen Molyneux. Just for the last few minutes of the show, now we can try a call. 1-800-313-9443 if questions or comments. So, Facebook co-founder Eduardo Saverin, thanks to the producer Mike for reminding me of the name, may be allowed, may not be allowed to return to the U.S. after he renounces citizenship to save millions in tax. The 30-year-old who has a $3.64 billion stake in the social networking site migrated to Singapore ahead of the company's massive, well, I guess recent stock, flota- stock market flotation. So, of course, Singapore doesn't have capital gains tax. Uh, he's going to save estimates are hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, in, in taxes. So, according to an immigration law, he could be refused re-entry to the U.S. if he is judged to have relocated for the purposes of avoiding taxes. And some politicians are talking about, well, we're just going to bill him anyway. I mean, that's really astounding because the taxes have not actually been levied, at least at the time that these threats were being made. So it's like saying, well, I'm going to move to Singapore and, you know, I currently make $50,000 a year and pay, I don't know, $15,000 a year in taxes. And I'm going to move to Singapore. And then some government official could then say, well, but if you'd stayed in America, you'd have paid us $15,000 in tax per year over the next 10 years. So we're going to send you a bill for $150,000 plus, plus interest or whatever. Because you've moved and therefore deprived us of income. Because it's not like he has a tax bill of hundreds of millions of dollars, and he's fleeing it. He fled it. He left and renounced his citizenship before he had the tax bill. So he's not fleeing taxes that he, quote, legally owes. He's doesn't owe them. He leaves, renounces his citizenship. But the government says, oh, you're by, by leaving the country and renouncing your citizenship, you're depriving us of potential income, so we're going to bill you as if that potential income was actually real. So... However horrifying this is, and, you know, it's after 30 years of looking at the state, it's it's hard to be horrified uh, anymore. But what this does is it gives a great gift to libertarians or voluntarists or whoever is talking about the invalidity of the social contract, because people will say, well, if you don't like it, you can leave. But the government is really saying, no, you can't. 
or, you know, we're going to hit you with a huge bill even if you leave uh, and uh, we're going to not allow you to come back if you go. And so that really does turn the entire, entire social contract, you know, into a UFO uh, <laughs> that people believe in until there's lots of people around who can verify to the opposite. And now the people in power, the people in government are actually verifying to the opposite as well. You say, if you don't like it, you can leave it. No, you can't. No, you can't. We will bill you hundreds of millions of dollars for trying to leave. And we will not allow you to return. And if you return and don't pay us some money, we will arrest you. And we will throw you in jail. And if you resist, we are going to shoot you. That is a very powerful cage that is descending. Because you see, you are the ruler's property. You are the ruler's property. If I go to a neighbor's farm and steal his cow, he is going to come and get his cow back. And if I won't give him his cow back, he's at least going to demand all the milk that I'm getting from the cow. And Singapore is the neighboring tax farm that has stolen this very fat and lucrative cash cow called a Facebook co-founder. And they are coming to get their pound of flesh because we are tax livestock. We are not people. We are not free souls. We are not the glowing gods of the universe we are designed to be. We are profit centers for the powerful. And as soon as we see that, we diminish in value because an evil that is identified, that is exposed, is no longer accepted, is no longer worshipped, is no longer praised, and no longer obeyed. Thank you, everybody, and thank you to Monsieur Le Corbett, who's currently enjoying Europe for the opportunity. CorbettReport.com. I am Stéphane Molyneux from Freedom Aid Radio saying, Good night, my fellow tax slaves. I will see you in the land of the free in our dreams. <laughs>